listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for 16th of May to the 20th of May. Highlights this week. Uh, we had a very fun discussion about all the silly things you believed as a child. And also Richard Watts, Watto, came in to uh, talk about all the arts funding cuts that had made made in the latest budget. And then we talked about lottery syndicates and we set up our own lottery syndicate mm-hmm. with predictably disastrous results. <laughs> and then we talked to Luke Williams about his new book, The Ice Age, all about uh, crystal meth. The Ice Age, A Journey into Crystal Meth Addiction is a fascinating new book just out through Scribe. The author is Luke Williams. We're joined with him here in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. This book really has kind of two components. On the one hand, it's an analysis of ice and ice addiction in Australia. On the other hand it's about your story and your involvement with the drug so let's start first by talking about the analytical component and a very simple question that you sort of touch on in the book what actually is ice ice is crystallized meth as opposed to powdered meth we've had crystallized meth in australia for about five years in a big way before that it was just coming in drips and drabs and so when people were using meth or speed Prior to that, they were in fact using powdered meth. From 2011 onwards, we now have crystallised meth, which is made from the same ingredients that powdered meth is. It's just once, and by the same process, it's just one step further, which turns that powder into crystals. And the resulting difference is driving in a V8 versus taking off in an aeroplane. So that's, I mean, people have being accustomed to speed, being around for a long, long time. Is that the main difference, that ice is just stronger and more addictive? It is just, it is just stronger, but, it's a, but also speed. People get confused about what speed, or they, they don't get confused. They should, they should be questioning when they say they've taken speed. They've, they've in fact taken powdered meth. People think that speed is different to meth. It's actually not. Speed is powdered meth. Mm. Okay, and how much of a problem is it in Australia? We hear wildly different accounts of some people say there is a meth uh, there is an ice epidemic going on and some people say that actually this is overstated and it's no worse than the other drugs. What's your take on that? I, I don't think epidemic is the right word because epidemic would mean like a virus that's carrying through the general population and spreading out of control. Mm. But there's a lot of evidence to say there's a surge in harms related to use of amphetamines. That evidence can't be really questioned. So the people who would the same grouping of population who were using ecstasy or speed as in powdered meth five years ago, they're generally using crystal meth. And as a result of that, more of them are becoming psychotic, more of them are becoming addicted to drugs, more of them are requiring medical attention, more of them seem to be perhaps even committing some crime. So do you think that there is a qualitative difference with the sort of drug problems that people are having around ice compared to, you know, stories of drug addiction in Australia are not new, but do you think there's something qualitatively different happening now? Yes, most definitely, most definitely. So it's nuanced. So it's, it's, it's not an epidemic, but it is also a serious problem at the same time. Okay, well, let's talk about your story then. When did you first get exposed to ice? When did you start using it and what is it that attracted you to it? Well, I'd been a powdered meth drug user for about six years before I tried crystal meth and I'd just been using it on and off and it wasn't having a big deal on my life. I could take it or leave it. Sometimes I'd even fall asleep that same night. 
uh, after I'd used it. And I'd been to rehab prior to that because I'd had a drug problem uh, uh, during... Uh, I worked at the ABC for a while and I, and I had to take time out of work for that to, to deal with that. And after that, I was able to moderate my drug use. I never had the goal of being completely clean. I just wanted to keep it under control. Uh, after, after that, I had worked in a law job and I decided I didn't want to do that and I wanted to write full time. And so I knew these pretty dodgy people who lived out in Pakenham and I thought if I go and live with them because they dealt drugs from there, I knew that they were robbing houses. I knew that, that they were having issues with drugs. I knew if I lived there somehow I'd get a good story out of it and uh, I could take drugs with them as well when I was there. So I was just using the drugs that they were using and as it turned out, which was meth, which I thought was the same thing as the meth we'd been taking for, for years earlier, that meth that I was in fact taking with them was crystallised meth, which was completely different and something I wasn't prepared for. Well, maybe let's talk about that then. As someone, you go through in the book, you've used lots of different drugs over different times. From a, from a user's perspective, how is um, ice different from these other drugs? Why did it have such a, a big impact on you and other users? Because it feels a little bit like a lucid dream and it feels like you can live in everyday reality and live in a fantasy world at the same time in the sense that people can have rolling images in their mind which take them into other worlds as they're going about their everyday business while you're on drugs. So I've met a lot of people, for instance, who... Uh, will take it and sit there and imagine that they're going into secret underground caverns or going skiing or going into enchanted forests or travelling to other planets. And uh, when it's not doing that, it can have more subtle types of fantasies which you don't necessarily recognise as fantasies as in you reimagine yourself and reimagine your life in, in, in a much more favourable light. And so in a sense that you, you become your, your ego ideal and then when you're coming down... Uh, those fantasies tend to flip over and, and whatever you're imagining yourself as being it strong or popular or, or beautiful tends to become the exact opposite when you're coming down. So it's really that link with, with tremendous fantasy that, that you don't really get from any other type of drug. Was ice ever a, a recreational thing for you in that it wasn't totally consuming you when you weren't having these fantasies? Was ice ever a drug that you could just do and go, that was a bit of fun for a night? or a couple of days and then walk away from? Or was it always quite an extreme experience? It was always quite an event because I'd take half a point, which is nothing, like 40 bucks worth, and that would last me 24, 36 hours and it would always be a very memorable experience in some way. You mentioned before when you were um, at rehab and your intention there was just to to not completely go off drugs but just to maintain it. Why just the maintaining? Why didn't you want to get rid of drugs in your life altogether? Because I enjoyed them and uh, I had a lot of fun on drugs and, and I met some really interesting people and I, I was younger back then. I liked going to nightclubs and what have you and I felt like... And I was a big part of the gay culture <laughs> and I didn't want to miss out on all that. I just didn't want drugs to be uh, and what's destroying your, my where, life. And where are you at with it now? Well, I, I haven't used 
uh, drugs in uh, in 15 months now because I've uh, I know it's very 2015, <laughs> but I've been doing mindfulness meditation and uh, I've been reading a lot on uh, Buddhism and that's taken my life in a different direction now. And I'm 36 now, so I don't want to be, you know, oh one God, of those dirty old 50-year-olds mm-hmm. yeah. um, <laughs> who are still off their face every weekend. So uh, it's ty- it was a good time now to um, have maybe one final hurrah and, uh, and then I can move on to other things in, in life now. There's lots of different theories about drug addiction. You go through some of them in your book. I mean, it, it jumped out at me when I was reading the book. You talk about being bullied terribly at school. You talk about grappling with your sexuality, quite a difficult relationship with your parents. How important were those issues in your use of ice? Do you think that if it hadn't have been ice, it would have been something else? Or was there something specific about ice that caused all of these problems? It's, it's hard to say. It's a good question. I mean, when when I started having psychotic episodes on, on the crystal meth, uh, they would play out as, as very clear metaphors for me at the time, which was that I often thought people were trying to kill me. And that got me to realise that the fear and the reason why I had two years after high school where I, where I couldn't leave my bedroom and, and I couldn't leave the house without having panic attacks, and, and that never, never made sense to me, was because I was actually... Uh, fearful for my life. I was actually scared that people were going to kill me. And in that sense, the crystal meth use was healing because it enabled me to have psychotic episodes that got into my unconscious and and got into the base of what some of these, you know, neuroticisms were. But in terms of whether it caused the... Uh, the drug use. Yes, it did initially when I was 18 and I was using speed or meth, you know, uh, MDMA to help me get out of the house and do stuff because I was so anxious. But then I dealt with that and then it just became a habit in itself. But crystal meth is also a confidence drug and a, and a self-esteem drug and it makes you feel like you're successful and beautiful and popular and not things that I felt for a very long time in my teenage years but on the same token I don't want to dwell on that too much because I find when I do it leads to a kind of self-victimization where I go well I've had all these problems and I need to self-medicate so I'm allowed to go and take drugs again. All right just before we run out of time if someone is listening to this and they uh, may be struggling with the problem with ice what advice would you give people I mean for someone who's been through it what would you say to them it it does actually boil down to a choice and if you're struggling with it and you want to stop then you can it does you can make a choice to stop if you want to are there any particular places that you think would be helpful for people well I guess that's part of the problem is that the treatment services are unfunded so we don't have enough uh, treatment places for people to go to but uh, there's places like crystal meth anonymous and uh Victoria has a crystal meth helpline that people can call up and and get uh, referrals. But uh, there, there is a way. If you want to stop, you can stop. If you really, really want to stop, you, you can stop. And, and it is up to you. You can make, make a choice. All right. And there's lots of information in your book, of course, which is entitled The Ice Age, A Journey into Crystal Meth Addiction. It's out now through Scribe. We've been talking to its author, Luke Williams. Thank you so much for coming to Triple R. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. I'd very much like to talk to our next guests about Eurovision because I did see that he was uh, 
<laughs> tweeting Eurovision from four o'clock in the morning. It was up again, tweeting it at eight pm when it was repeated on SBS. But we are talking to Richard Watts about the more depressing subject of arts funding. How are you going, Mr. Watts? I'm uh, remarkably well, all things considering. <laughs> you do have a Eurovision glow about you. So, <laughs> uh, so last Friday we learned that, um, what had happened in the most recent round of Australia Council funding. What um, is causing all the controversy? What's happened is that a large number of previously funded organisations have lost their funding. Now, we knew that this was going to happen because previously the Australia Council budget was significantly reduced when uh, the federal government, under the then Arts Minister, Senator George Brandis, uh, raided the Australia Council's budget, removed a large amount of money for their own funding process. Uh, Some of that money was since given back, but not enough to actually sustain the account, the Australia Council's plan to fund a a wide range of organisations for six years at a time. Previously, arts organisations were funded uh, under a three-year cycle. They were going to expand that to six to give everybody more stability, more opportunity for for growth. Um, And instead, because of the reduced budget, that meant that six-year plan was rolled back. Uh, It's now a four-year funding cycle and there's simply not enough money to go around. So what are some of the organisations that have lost funding? uh, The Wangaratta Jazz Festival, for example, has lost their funding. The youth arts organisation Express Media, who published VoiceWorks magazine, a dedicated magazine for writers under 25. Um, And some of the writers from that magazine uh, are people like Anna Crean, Benjamin Law, really significant writers who cut their teeth when they were young through that process. Uh, Other organisations include Arena Theatre, the Next Wave Festival, which is on at the moment. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you're thinking of going to see uh, an arts event this week, go and buy tickets for a Next Wave show because I suspect they're going to need the money. Um, Outside of Victoria, we're looking at companies like Force Majeure in Sydney, Legs on the Wall, a physical theatre company in Sydney and over in Adelaide. A wide range of of companies have lost funding. Vital Statistics, which is a a feminist theatre company uh, who very much support the development of new work. Uh, companies like Slingsby, like Brink Productions, who are the, the kind of smaller mid-tier theatre companies. So it would be the... Uh, Adelaide has kind of been gutted. It's uh, quite frightening. Uh, we've seen Mianjin, one of the, the iconic literary magazines, lost funding. Uh, the current editor, Jonathan Green, is saying that Mianjin may now be closing. Is that likely to be the result for many of these organisations? I think, unfortunately, it is, that by the end of the year, uh, we will have a, a clearer picture. But this is organisational funding that uh, is for the, the core business of companies. So this is funding that is used to help pay uh, staff wages, for example, uh, and, and keep companies operating day to day. And without that funding, I very much fear that, yes, some companies will have to close. So with the election coming up, is there any chance that any of this will be reassessed or is what has what has happened is that it? Is this kind of set in stone? There, there will be uh, attempts to push back uh, and to try and secure funding for other organisations. Uh, I suspect that given that the Australia Council's budget has been constricted, we're talking uh, losses of, of millions over the years uh, and we're also seeing similar cuts uh, in other area, cultural sectors. So up in Canberra, the, uh, the National Gallery has been forced to close. It's uh, quite recently opened Contemporary Art Wing, uh, there have been staff cuts, which means that opera, uh, opening hours are, uh, are being cut back as well. Uh, so there, there will be attempts 
I know by other funding bodies such as Creative Victoria, Art South Australia and so on to try and help keep companies afloat. But I am absolutely certain, unfortunately, that uh, because of the limited funds that the Australia Council now have, uh, that uh, organisations will close and there's not a great deal that can be done about that in some cases. Uh, the opposition have promised that if they come uh, into power at the election, they will restore the money that was cut from the Australia Council. Uh, and that would be enormously significant and then would allow the Australia Council to perhaps revisit its funding outcomes. Out of all, you know, there were... Sorry. <clears throat> there were people that did benefit, though. I heard there was, like, 17 um, Indigenous arts things that did benefit from from getting funding um so like basically i'm trying to find out can you tell us a bit of good news (laughs) well yeah there is some good news and i certainly uh feel that some of the organizations who as you say have received uh operational uh organizational funding for the first time absolutely deserve that. Yuri Yarkin is one good example. They're uh, an Indigenous theatre company over in WA. So they've now got a more stable and secure base. Instead of having to apply for funding annually, uh, they've now got a four-year period where they can focus on developing new work, becoming stronger as a company, finding uh, other funding sources to complement government funding. Um, so there is definitely some good news there. And I, I, something I wanted to acknowledge, I'm sure there'll be people saying, but why do the arts need funding? Surely mm. they should be able to be self-sufficient. Um, I find it interesting that people say that about the arts, but they never say that about, I don't know, the manufacturing sector or the mining sector, which also depend on significant handouts from the government in order to uh, to, to stay functional and afloat. The arts are no different to that. So if we're going to remove arts funding, then I would also argue that we need to remove uh, government subsidies for other sectors yeah, as well. Yeah, because one of the figures they said it, it has an investment of $7 billion and it it creates $50 billion. Is that... Did I read that somewhere? Uh, you probably did. I'm trying to find... <laughs> the, uh, Sounds very more, impressive. More people yeah, employed in the arts than in mining. Uh, more yeah. Australians enjoy the arts than enjoy sport. Yeah. Um, just just on some, some background on this decision, though, it's not so much that the total arts funding has been cut, is it? It's that uh, money has been shifted out of the Australia Council into what was previously known as the National Program for Excellence in the Arts and is now the Catalyst Fund. Can you explain the difference between those two organisations? Absolutely. So the Australia Council was set up uh, to operate at arm's length from government as an independent organisation using peer-assessed panels uh, and processes to decide where funding should be allocated. Uh, The money that has been removed from the Australia Council and, as you say, setting up a separate fund which is operated out of the Ministry for the Arts uh, so it's now actually run directly by government rather than at arm's length. It's funding processes are not transparent. We have no idea how organisations are selected. And what we've seen uh, just recently, Catalyst funding, the first round of Catalyst funding was awarded. It's about it's uh, 12 million a year for uh, over four years. Um, and they've already announced the first two years of funding essentially in the one week just before the election was called. We don't... And some of the money that's been awarded seems to be outside the guidelines. Catalyst, in theory, is supposed to be uh, supporting... Uh, well, have a focus 
focus on the small to medium sector. And instead, what we've seen is uh, $1 million go to the Australian Ballet, who are not a small to medium company. They're a major uh, company. Um, and we've also seen a million dollars go to purchasing uh, a house in South Australia in a Liberal Party electorate, um, uh, which was the home of an artist. So it's going to be set up as a, a, a heritage site, f uh, as a new museum, essentially. Uh, and again, these projects seem to be outside the Catalyst guidelines. So the, the whole process by which Catalyst is operating is unusual uh, and certainly at odds with its own funding guidelines. And there's, there doesn't appear to be any independence, uh, and well, that's deeply concerning. Why aren't the government being held accountable for that? It just seems to be like a whole pile of money they're giving to people that are on their side, by the sounds of things. Uh, the phrase pork barrelling has been thrown <laughs> yeah. around quite a bit. Slush fund, I heard. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's another one. So yeah. there is... Uh, it, it's an, a really unusual situation. Uh, if that money had not been removed from the Australia Council, we'd see a lot of the organisations who've lost funding actually secure and maintain their funding. So uh, it's it's been an unusual process. It's caused an enormous amount of uh, anger in the arts community, uh, and I think justifiably so. Do you think that this is going to be um, now kind of a through line into the election? Do you think there's going to be enough of a voice for people to make a big deal out of this and have the government pay attention? I would like to think so. It was interesting that last Friday when the funding announcements uh, were actually announced that the ABC's 7.30 led with a story about uh, the crisis in the arts sector um, and uh, the news that night also had a, a major story on it in the 7pm the bulletin. And that's unusual. The the mm. arts often don't get talked about uh, in, in this kind of way. So there's been as I said, there's been a lot of anger, there's been an unusual degree of mainstream media coverage uh, and I think what we will see in the in the coming weeks leading up to the election is a lot of angry artists campaigning. There is, in mm. fact, an entirely new party, political party, uh, that's been set up called the Arts Party, who uh, are very much focused on uh, the issue of funding and culture and placing culture in the at the, at the heart of uh, the way we operate. So they'll be campaigning. Uh, I'm sure Labor have absolutely already said that they will be campaigning on the issue as well. So it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds and, and to see what kind of impact uh, the art-loving public can have on the mm. election as well. Because um, I think if you have worked for an independent theatre company, um, then you know some of the issues. But friends and family, and we'll see, I think, a, a ripple effect as people go, but hold on, my favourite theatre company has to close. That's outrageous. I won't stand mm. for it. And we'll see what happens. Mm. I guess, unfortunately, it's also in the context of massive cutbacks to Fairfax, which reduces the arts coverage that they have, massive cuts to the ABC, which also reduces... So it's a whole infrastructure that's under threat. We need Winston Churchill back on the scene. Because you remember when... Um, there's a quote... When, <laughs> sorry. It's when Winston Churchill... Churchill was asked to cut arts funding in favour of the war effort, he simply replied, then what are we fighting for? <laughs> I'm going to jump in and say he didn't actually say it. Don't ruin it for everyone, <laughs> <laughs> What it, do you mean? What did he say? He didn't... He, it's a made-up quote, but um, it's a great sentiment. Uh, yeah. He so should have said it. He should have oh, said it. At least yeah. the Arts Party will have nice posters anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Richard Watts, for coming in. People can tune in to Smart Arts to hear more about this. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. 
Hey, do you guys remember when you were a kid, you used to be able to um, listen to the TV on the radio? Did you ever get that? Listen to, to the, the TV, TV on the like radio. Like the TV would, you know, whatever was happening on the TV, you know, you'd just be able to listen to it. No. It was simul- I anyway. I don't know if I had that. Really? Yeah. Is so that a thing? I, is that a, yeah. It was. It was a special TV. Are you sure it was it? Yes, him? absolutely. Because I have a memory when I was younger, um, mum had to go in the fruit and veggie to, oh, s- shop. She said, Oh, you get some fruit and veggies. So you sit here and listen to the Smurfs. So I listened to the Smurfs on the radio. And I was oh. like, Oh, this is. I'm like, But I'm listening. But I really wanted to see the picture. I'm like, There must be a picture. So I, like, I looked. It kept on looking into the tape deck to see oh, like that's a so tiny cute. little. Oh, Jess, that's hurting my heart. <laughs> tiny little TV oh, going. Where is the Smurf in the tape deck? Hello, yeah. Carol. <laughs> so, uh, so obviously, I believed a lot of um, silly things when I was a child, and I want to know if other listeners believe silly things were when they were children. Um, give us a call on nine three double eight one zero two seven if you've got some cool stories. Um, Jeff, did you believe anything weird when you were a kid? My sister and I were totally obsessed with pigs. Yes. You're still obsessed with pigs. Yeah, that's true. It's it's waned a little bit. But no, I was thinking, just thinking, I'm not totally sure where this this came from, but I was just thinking about it. Um, I remember at one point we went to an art gallery and it was a painting that had a pig on it and just being convulsed in laughter for like for close to three quarters out to the point where we had to leave just because we thought it was so funny that there was a picture of a pig in the in the um and we had a whole thing about it yeah really mm. It wasn't. There was no particular set of belief. The set of beliefs. The belief was just that pigs were pigs innately funny. funny. Yeah. <laughs> every time you saw them, you must have been so excited when Babe Pig in the City came yeah. out. <laughs> so funny. Now they Classic talk. movie. Uh, I don't know that I did. I I had a dad though that loved to like trick people. I mm. think he thought that was his calling in life. He, and he trick his friends. He trick my friends. He tried to trick us. With your dad. I feel like you yeah. would have, but it also explains a lot about me. I think that I'm just constantly a little bit concerned I'm being tricked by people. Mm. Uh, but he had things like at our farm, he loved when we were little kids, he would go outside <coughs> at night sometimes and like he had this thing called the Yakamakaka bird, which in retrospect sounds very fake. But I, I, yeah. It does. <laughs> yeah, it's like he just thought of a word yeah. and went, yeah, Yakamakaka. <laughs> and he would go outside and like tap on the window. So the Yakamakaka had massive claws. So it wasn't a particularly That's pleasant <laughs> And he'd go, yeah, come on, come on, come on, no. <laughs> and we'd just be like, oh, Yakamakaka burns out. And then, yeah, we believed that for a very long time. And he'd also do it when I had friends staying with us at the farm as well. So my oh, friends, terrified. Ter- I reckon that'd be illegal <laughs> now. I reckon yeah. these kids would go home to their parents. And the vision of the, 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 of the Smith farm is kind of like a scene from Wolf Creek. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So if you can beat that, give us a call on 93881027. We're talking about <laughs> weird things you believed when you were a kid. Here's another example. I used to always believe that if I close my eyes then no one could see me like I thought I was invisible yeah like an ostrich yeah no I was a bit like when you know um like for me playing hide and hide and seek was just me standing in the hallway with my eyes closed oh I feel like that's a very common childhood thing like because you think you play peekaboo and you think you disappear yeah exactly yeah I just held on to that belief Uh, for a very long time I I, I can remember believing that I could do martial arts after reading a book in where in where (laughs) 
the heroes explained that, you know, about how they fought with martial arts because they used people's strength against them. I can remember having these slow motion play <laughs> Wow, pow. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, apparently it's more complicated than that, but <laughs> who knew? You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Hey, guys, earlier in the news, we were talking about uh, the story of a guy called Brendan King, who's uh, part of a um, group of workers in a Liverpool factory who won a $40 million jackpot at uh, Lotto, but they're now at war with each other. When will people learn syndicates don't work? <laughs> like, they always, has there ever been a time that they've ended well? Syndicates in a factory, never. <laughs> now he's... um. They're all threatening to sue each other and now he has to work um, in a different place in the factory because they all hate each other so much. Do we know how many people... We don't know much more about that, do Uh, we? Like how many people are are involved and who's got all the money? Like who's at fault here? Um... uh, no, I'm just skimming through the story. No, it's all a little it's bit all kind of it's a little bit vague. Yeah. Um, there's been an attempt to mediate the dispute, but the Daily Telegraph says it's not progressing well. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, surely someone's got the money. So someone's One not working. One member in a has already left his job in, in anticipation of the payout, which I oh. suspect is maybe a bit premature. Yeah, I think it might. And be. Mr. King is working off-site until the incident is resolved. So that doesn't suggest. Uh, I don't understand. You think that like you're all getting a fair bit of money? Can't you just all suck it? up and yeah, well, get a chunk each. <clears throat> is the problem that Brendan's going to miss out altogether? I think that uh, I think that they're disputing who actually put money in for that particular uh, ticket. Okay. So I guess, you know, so like maybe like it's something... Brendan didn't pay up that, that week. week. Yeah. So that's the thing. Okay, what, what, what's the ethics of that, right? If we say we, the three of us, had a syndicate, this is never going to happen, but say, say, <laughs> say, say we did, right? A syndicate of a <laughs> bottle of gin. <laughs> <laughs> say that and, um, every week we put in, you know, yeah. and but one week... I'm sick. Oh, yeah, but you normally do it, but that mm. particular week you're sick and that week... So I in, chuck in extra or whatever, yeah. Yeah, and that week we win the jackpot. Yeah. Do we have to give her any? Yes, no, maybe. <laughs> yes, we do. If it's something where you're regularly putting in money, we have to give her a third. Maybe maybe that just proves that I was the unlucky charm. Oh, that would be argument what if, Jeff would make. What if, she wasn't, what if she wasn't sick but, like... Just it, didn't have money that week. Yeah, or she just didn't get around to giving yeah, it no, to you. Yeah, no, then I get to... Then I get it. You can take my, my cut out no, of my No, winnings. if you're sick, you should get it. But if yeah, you just can't you, be bothered to... If you just can't be bothered... You. If one week you're like, oh, I'll pass this week, guys. Oh, no, if I do that, obviously, but if I go... Uh, oh, oh, sorry, Jeff, I haven't got the money. I'll give it to you tomorrow. Then if we win Lotto, you can take my... I'll give you the $10 that I was going to put in for the syndicate. You can take that out of my wings. But I still have to give you $10 million. <laughs> this is like yeah. the opposite of um, Gary, who was our favourite person ever. Well, this came him. up when we were doing When we filled in last, last year, yeah. yeah. We, I think we milked Gary for... <laughs> Two weeks. Here he is again. <laughs> and he's, yeah, he is back. Um, Gary, now for people that don't know about Gary, he. Um, Gary Barron. <laughs> Gary. Actually, Gary. From Geelong. He, <laughs> is that Gary on the phone now? <laughs> <laughs> so, Gary, um, same situation. There was a syndicate. He was the one that was responsible of buying the tickets and collecting the money and whatnot. And then they won. But he. He didn't tell anyone that he'd won Lotto and he claims that he bought a separate ticket and he won off that ticket. Ah. Um, 
but he didn't tell anyone, uh, probably because, you know, maybe, you know, whether he might have been lying. So Did he just start turning up to work with, like, really nice shoes? No, he quit work. He left, oh, right, bought this. a new house and stuff. Um, and, oh, it claimed that he got in an inheritance, but oh. then he was busted because he worked for Toll, as in the courier truck driving people. Yeah. Toll. Um and the, the lotto hired um, someone from Toll to deliver a, a congratulations bottle of champagne. Oh. And it was one of his co-workers that was in the syndicate that oh, rocked up at his right. door. Right. I totally was like, Bing about bong. this. Hi, Gary. <laughs> what are you celebrating? Yeah. What's, why am I delivering well, a bottle of champagne from Tats Lotto to you? We don't know the ins and outs of it, so maybe it's all... Maybe it's all legit. Yeah, you never know. It could be all legit. It was all settled out of court apparently, but it turns out that just a month ago um, there was a certain – there was 14 um, people sued him uh, and that it was settled out of, out of court and apparently they were said to be very happy with the outcome. But now this claims that there's another five people that have come forward and gone, actually, I was I was a part oh. of that syndicate. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, think, I think Sarah's right. It never ends well, does it? No. People all. just keep coming out of the woodwork. Imagine him. Imagine that happened to Triple R. What if we had a little syndicate? Then it was like someone what? else would be like, oh, maybe I was in on that. How could you prove it? Yeah. Well, yeah. I had um, I knew of a person, I didn't know them, but I heard a story of a person who started uh, at a new job for like, um, they were there for the first couple of weeks and they, you know, they went around going, oh, do you want to be part of the syndicate? Because, oh, yeah, put a bit of money in for that. Uh, and they won, but she didn't win enough to warrant. Like it was something like her share was like a hundred thousand dollars or something. So a substantial amount, <laughs> but not enough to quit your job. Yeah. And she said it was horrible, like really? the worst. Why? Just it doesn't sound that horrible. Sounded quite good. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, but then you think about all the people that weren't at work that day. And the attitude that oh. she got from everybody else is going, well, I would have been, I would have put oh, money in. You into can't it. do that, though, can you? Yeah, I mean, no, you, you can't, can't but people did. People do, because <laughs> people are crazy. Yeah, but I would have gone in. Do you guys want to buy a lotto ticket tonight? Well, I, I've got the app. We can buy one right now. Yeah, let's All do right, it. Let's, do let's not do it on air, but let's do it. All right. And we then can we'll do report that. back if we win. Okay. Or maybe we just won't turn <laughs> well, up tomorrow. Who's, who's going to pay for it? You have to. Oh, Jeff. Yeah, I'll give it to you tomorrow. You'll pay you back. Oh, are you? This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.